Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Easy Conversations podcast, a podcast about having easy conversations. I'm your host, Furkan Dandia. In this week's episode, I am excited to welcome Faraz Ramji. Faraz is a certified teacher of Search Inside Yourself, a leadership program founded at Google that teaches mindfulness and emotional intelligence to individuals and organizations worldwide. He's also completing the Mindfulness and Meditation Teachers Certification Program and undergoing training to become a professional coach with the Coactive Training Institute. He believes these skills are essential in our rapidly changing and unpredictable world. Because of Faraz's background, he is mainly focused on bringing mindfulness, emotional intelligence, and other mental health interventions to entrepreneurs and leaders within organizations because he believes in the impact of such work on individuals and the people they interact with. Faraz currently spends his time between the UK and East Africa, where he remains involved with the projects he founded. Faraz studied development studies and politics at the School of Oriental and African Studies through the University of London and also completed a business transformation program in Nairobi with Stanford Institute for Innovation in Developing Economies. Faraz is a successful entrepreneur. He co-founded Norda Industries Limited in Nairobi, in Kenya in 2007. He was the managing director until 2018 when he stepped back to the board to pursue other interests. He grew the company into one of the largest snack manufacturers in East Africa with annual revenues of approximately $10 million and employing over 250 people directly and hundreds more indirectly. Faraz is also the chairman of EDD. This Rwandan nonprofit works to rehabilitate former street children and educate other vulnerable children with a strong emphasis on social emotional learning. The organization has rehabilitated and reintegrated over 600 former street children into society. In this episode, Faraz shares his journey and discusses why emotional intelligence is crucial in the corporate world. We discuss how leaders can nurture more of an emotionally intelligent environment and how people can build mindfulness into their life, even in the workplace. Please find Faraz on LinkedIn, And if at the end of the episode, you can leave a five-star review, I would really appreciate it. All right, Faraz, welcome to the Easy Conversations podcast. Thank you for connecting with me recently and wanting to come on here and have this conversation with me today. But uh, before we get started, I want to give you an opportunity to tell the listeners who are you and what it is that you do? And, and then we'll get on with our conversation. Thank you, Furkan. And uh, really, it's, it's an honor and, and a privilege to be on here. I love the work that you're doing and, um, and the platform that you created. So thank you for having me. Um, I have a background in business um, as well as development. So I have run um, businesses here in East Africa and also uh, kind of worked in the nonprofit space as well, um, mainly with, uh, with vulnerable youth. Um, and then more recently, I am teaching and facilitating a little bit of coaching um, workshops around uh, the topics of mindfulness and emotional intelligence. I'm really passionate about, excited to talk about 
Yeah. And, and where are you based uh, normally? Right now, I spend my time between London, uh, UK, and, uh, and Rwanda. So I'm actually in Rwanda, Kigali, Rwanda right now. Very cool. Very cool. Uh, yeah, I haven't had any guests from Rwanda yet. So <laughs> that's awesome. And uh, so I guess just immediately the question that came to my mind when I started chatting with you was why emotional intelligence and, and why is it so important in organizations? Yeah, great question. Um, I mean, I don't know about, about you, Furkan, but for me growing up, um, I was never really taught about emotions. Um, and it was kind of implied that they were either a, a bad thing that needed to be avoided or contained or, or they were a soft thing, uh, you know, and, and definitely not something that a boy or a man should, should have or should express. Um, and so I think as a result, we, we have a workforce, um, you know, in, in all lines of work, it's not limited to corporate, I mean, the education space, um, development space in, you know, political institutions, etc., where people aren't really comfortable with emotions. They, some of them, many, many of us don't, you know, don't actually know what an emotion is, how we experience it, how we're supposed to deal with kind of unpleasant um, or uncomfortable emotions. And I think as a result, yeah. it's a whole multitude of consequences to that. Um, and so I think it's time to kind of redress that balance and, and try to, you know, trying to give some focus and energy to, to emotions so that, and, and how to manage and regulate them so that, um, you know, we can, we can show up better for each other, for ourselves and for each other. Yeah. Yeah. No, and that's so important. I think to add to the, the whole narrative you shared about emotions, I think there was an aspect of even uh, weakness um, that was associated with showing emotions in the sense that, you know, if you were being emotional or you were sharing your emotions, you didn't really have it together and therefore, you know, you couldn't be relied upon or, or you're, you're kind of weak, right? So I think that was kind of the other narrative I've seen. And, and one of the things I often see in organizations as well is, is emotions aren't really put on the table because A, they make everyone else feel uncomfortable because they haven't dealt with their own emotions, but also it's just, there's no space to talk about it because it can often detract from the focus or, or the business objectives. Meanwhile, you've got people experiencing emotions all the time, whether it's work related, whether it's stuff they're dealing with their, in, in their personal life, they don't have that container or, or space to, to share that, or even talk about it. You kind of just almost the expectation is, and I'm speaking kind of from personal experience too, but the expectation is you kind of come in and you're a robot. You have to shut everything off that's going on, uh, below the surface. Um, is that something you see and, and, uh, have experienced as well? Yeah. I mean, I, lo I, I, I love the points that you bring up and it's, uh, kind of relaying a back a, a lot back to me as well. Uh, I, um, you know, I, as part of the kind of business work that, that I do, 
I, you know, I'm in a network called Stanford Seed and it's where various entrepreneurs can come together and we kind of have a leadership lab once once a month, we do months and we talk about our business challenges and often our adaptive challenges. And mm-hmm. um, one of the participants in my group um, was really distraught because something had happened within her company. Actually, I think there'd been an integrity issue and they had to let go of someone. And she said to me, and she works with her husband. And she said, I wish I could be more like my husband. You know, I said, what do you mean? And she says, well, he's just so cruel and calm and calculated. And why do I have to be so emotional? Um, And I thought that was really interesting and really reflective of the point that you just made. Emotion Mm -hmm. as, and even when we talk about working with emotions in the workplace, we call them soft skills. You know, I'd like yeah. to turn on his head and say, no, those are the hard skills. Um, you know, soft is kind of implying towards weakness, as, as you mentioned earlier. So these are the hard skills. It's the stuff nobody wants to deal with. That's why it's hard. Um, and, you know, I, I said to this, this uh, co- uh, colleague or, well, not even colleague, but uh, member of my, of my, uh, my group, I said to her, no, actually... We revere, you know, people like that. You revere your husband for that. And that's fine. Maybe he has a logical, rational, calculated approach. But emotions, right. that's so full of information that's valuable mm-hmm. decision-making. There's so much there. The emotions are telling us something. And if we just stop to listen. So, so emotions are the problem here. The being overwhelmed by our emotions or being consumed by our emotions um, or not being able to to get the feedback that we need from our emotions is the is the challenge. But if we can mm-hmm. if we can extract that information of what the emotion is trying to tell us, then actually we can be really good decision makers. Uh, it's yeah, data points that we're getting there from emotion, and 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 actually that can make us better leaders. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and and I guess. Just to understand a little bit better, like what was it like in your own personal experience then to, to make that shift and almost be an ambassador for, for emotional intelligence in, in the space you're in? Um, and was that met with resistance either within yourself or those around you? That's a really good question for kind of just in a pause for a second to kind of. Yeah, sure. To just, you know not just um, throw something out there, but really feel into it. So, yeah, I mean, it's interesting because a lot of people say, well, you either have it or you don't. You know, yeah. it's, you're either good at math or you're not, or you're either an athlete or you're not. A lot of people are either good at emotional intelligence or you're not. Some people are just not, and they don't have... Um, you know, they don't have an empathic bone in their body. And, and of course, I would disagree with that. I, but I think a lot of us, you know, a lot of us are inclined in certain ways and others in other ways. So it comes more naturally to some people than others. So coming back to me, I mean, I, I think I was fairly empathic as a leader. And I think naturally I was fairly um, intuitive to what was going on within my, my thoughts, within my emotions and within those around, around me. So I think in that sense, 
even before having really studied or having the language uh, of emotional intelligence, I think it, it, you know, it came out quite naturally. That said, I, um, I was a work in progress. I'm still a work in progress and, um, and I still make mistakes and I get triggered and, you know, and sometimes I don't see the whole picture and I don't see the other person's perspective and, um, and that's okay too. I think mm-hmm. think that, uh, we are human beings. Um, yeah. and, and I love this is one of my favorite teachers and Cartoli says we're human beings. You know, it's, it's so easy to focus on this being part, this expansive, conscious, all-knowing, all-loving presence, you know. Yeah. We all aspire to be. And then we're humans as well. There's a, don't forget the human part of human beings. So, so I think the human part is we have, you know, we, we react at times and, uh, and sometimes not, uh, you know, as appropriately as we would like when we look back. I'm like, oh, how could I have handled that better? So, yeah. To, your question, I mean, I think it's been a mixed bag in my leadership experience. Um, I hope I'm evolving in the right direction. And mm-hmm. you ask the people that I, I supervise and work with for their opinion on that. But I, I, I'd like to think I'm moving in the right direction. Resistance? Um, look, sometimes there is this notion that this is soft stuff. This is wishy-washy. Yeah. Uh, we don't have the time for this. And now I'm teaching and facilitating and sometimes I'm going out there and prospecting companies as to why they need a program like this in their organization. And yeah, like, like we don't have budget for this. Doesn't, how do I link it to the bottom line? Um, yeah. Sometimes tricky. Sometimes it's not so tangible. There are measures, of course, but it's maybe less tangible than something like, oh, Here's a sales development program that's going to guarantee you 20% extra revenues when you put your employees through it. You know, if you're telling them about, you know, emotional intelligence program, yeah, the measures are, are a little less tangible and maybe a little more long-term. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there's so many things you touched on that I want to expand on a little bit further. Uh, so, so I think the, the most recent thing you med- mentioned that, you know, there's not a lot of time or or resources available to spend on emotional intelligence and it's not a big focus uh, in in many areas i think part of the problem is and i was reading something recently that it's you know a lot of organizations or it costs them billions of dollars because employees are getting burnt out and because there's burnout you know that impacts productivity so how can you prevent the burnout well, it's certain things that you mentioned, right? It's, it's the mindfulness, it's the emotional intelligence, being able to say, you know, if I'm experiencing, uh, that I'm being overworked or I'm overwhelmed, or I just need help being able to express that, uh, with my emotions. And if I don't have that language or I don't have that safety or container in the workplace, I'm not going to ask for that type of help. And that can impact the bottom line. We just don't connect the dots often, or, or a lot of organizations don't. And, and it, it is a root issue. I, I don't know if it's talked about as much, but I don't know what your thoughts are with regards to that. Well, I think you're absolutely spot on. Um, you know, I'd love, 
I'd love to work with you for on, on convincing companies why you know why they need you know this this knowledge, this information, and, and this light of work. But yes, you're right, and I think it comes down to this kind of short term versus long term approach. You know, companies who take a short term view and are really just about improving revenues um, and bottom line in the short run mm -hmm. may not see this as a priority area, and those who are really yeah long-term view who care about the well-being of their employees and they understand the cost of you know losing an employee to burnout and then having to get somebody else on board and retrain them um etc um they, they they can connect those dots in that way so i think it really comes down to the short-term versus long-term um thinking and also just believing that this stuff is of value um and there are tools to, to help with this. Like, like I mentioned earlier, you know, people just believe, well, either you're good at it or you're not. It's something that it can't, it can't be trained. Well, I think neuroplasticity and this kind of research that's coming out of neuroscience is showing us that our brains are changing, um, you know, in structure and function yep. depending on what we focus on and pay attention to. And that's true of learning a new language, of learning an instrument, for example, but also true of things like mindfulness. If you practice mindfulness, mm -hmm. just, you know, tools that help you develop emotional intelligence, such as empathy, then, you know, over and over again, you will form those neural pathways and will uh, become better at this stuff. So, mm -hmm. and, and so, yeah, yeah. make a really good point on employee well-being. Um, and, and, and burnout and things like that. And, and for the individual to practice these things, for their individual well-being, this is crucial. And also, if we are better within ourselves, yeah, our emotional health is better, then we're also yeah. likely to be kinder. In the mm -hmm. We're also likely to be more understanding of other people and therefore that increases productivity, that increases collaboration, uh, that in in increases creativity. Um, so I think there are multiple kind of knock-on effects there. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think the biggest probably benefit would be where you start treating people like people, right? And not machines. I think that's the biggest thing uh, I have experienced. Uh, not with everyone, but often there are times where, you know, the leaders are like just so completely detached from the, the 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 human side of it as you mentioned right and they're just like well all about the results the the other thing you touched on earlier was the language around emotions and i think you know myself included until recently if i didn't i didn't spend the time in my personal life uh learning about emotions and how to voice them i didn't have that language myself it's something like you said, I'm still learning and, and getting better at, but it's so important and there's not enough value put on that. And people often struggle with even naming their emotions or being able to express them because they don't know what they're feeling, right? And, and sometimes people are, come down to the very basics. They'll be like, oh, I'm angry, I'm sad, I'm this. But no, there's other emotions that are involved that can actually help you when you're able to label it yourself, you're able to understand better what you're experiencing and then by extension, help others understand. And just because we don't have that language, I think there's a lot of struggle 
because often people don't know themselves what they're feeling or experiencing. You make a really, really good point and a, a valid one. And I think, I think even if we go back a step before language of, of naming the emotions, um, it's how do I experience this emotion? And I think mm -hmm. if we time to tune in, um, and this is where mindfulness helps. And I don't mean mindfulness. By mindfulness, by the way, I just mean being present, being aware. Yeah. Simplest definition. Um, but still very accurate one for mindfulness. If you just take the time to be aware and direct that awareness inwards. So for example, somebody says I'm angry, right? If they could just take a few deep breaths and actually observe what is happening within their body. Because emotions are often experienced as physiological sensations. Mm. So they actually, and I didn't get this for a long time, you know, because yeah. I, I was thinking my emotions. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm angry or I'm sad or I'm, you know, but actually feel like, what am I actually feeling right now? You know, I'm saying, mm. I'm what am I actually feeling right now? This happened to me the other day when I received a really nasty email and I felt anger. And I said, where are you feeling this anger? What's going on here? And I actually felt I felt some sort of pressure in my face. You know how when you see the cartoon characters that get angry and their faces turn red? Actually, I felt yeah. in the face and I felt a rush in my arms. And that's actually quite accurate because, because that's like your fight or flight response coming on. You know, we are hardwired um, to respond to, to threats in this way. Now, in this sense, I saw this email as a threat. Um, and I was angry and I was feeling um, a rush of energy in my arms and a tightening and a contraction of my chest and some sort of tingling in the face. That's what I was feeling. And I think yeah. just being able to, to name that or, or to be aware of that physiological response in the body, that's the emotion. What that does is it helps to contain it. It helps to not mm -hmm. let that take us over. So instead of saying, yep. I am angry, I am experiencing anger in the body right now. Yeah. A whole yeah. different thing. Because now suddenly, oh, I can deal with that. This is a physiological, this is an experience at a, at a physiological level that, I, that I'm going through. And it'll pass. Yeah. And so what you said about naming is really important. Um, there's something online called the map of emotions. I can't remember exactly. I'll share the website with you. Um, that actually breaks down these core emotions and gives you a whole language around it um, to break it down so that we can be more kind of visceral about, oh, what is this? Is it anger or is it resentment? You know, is it fear or is it anxiety? Like, what exactly is this? And I think that's helpful to some extent. But I think the core thing is, is feeling the emotion, you know, as is. Yeah real thing in our bodies. Yeah. Yeah. No, thank you for sharing that and your own experience as well. That's helpful. And, and I think I've seen there's that wheel of emotions. I think there's a lot of things online that you can find. Uh, what I found recently was very helpful was this book by Brene Brown. It's called Atlas of the Heart and it breaks down like all the emotions. So that was very helpful for me. 
Um, but the other thing, you know, when you shared that physiological response, I've seen that in the group work I do as well with people. Uh, once you're able to kind of sit with the people and try to identify where you feel emotions, like for me, typically the primary one is anger and I feel it in my chest. So when you're able to identify where you're feeling that emotion, it's a lot easier in the moment too, because now you've kind of figured out, oh, okay, associated that physiological sensation with that emotion. So when it does happen in the moment, you're, I, I feel like you're way more, uh, aligned and attuned to what's going on in your body. So you're able to identify it sooner rather than to your point, resorting to your default fight or flight response. You're able to actually identify what's going on in your body and perhaps take that extra few seconds to pause and understand. So, so that's very important. So thank you for sharing that. Um, at least that's kind of been my experience too. Um, the other thing I wanted to touch on briefly is now you're starting to see this whole, um, I guess initiative around psychological safety in, in, within organizations. What, one of the things I see a problem with is I don't think <laughs> Psychological safety is just you something you label something and, and you just say, oh yeah, here you go. This place is safe. I think you have to, with anything, model that behavior. Um, the, the common example I use, it's, it's, it's the same with children, right? You can't just tell them, Hey, this is a safe space. You can say whatever you want. You actually have to model it through your own behavior. And then also when they do speak up give them that space and acceptance. And I don't think that's actually happening. I think it's just more of a, and this may sound harsh, uh, but it's more of a checking the box type of activity. So I don't know if what your thoughts are around that, but I just wanted to, to, yeah, get your, your insight and thoughts. Yeah. yeah I think many things, um, in the corporate world, unfortunately become checkbox exercises. And I think there may be various reasons for that. I think some of it has to do with this kind of achievement culture and, you know, measuring everything in terms of KPIs. And so how do we measure something like psychological safety? Well, <laughs> break it down, find elements, check, 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 check. Um, and we've seen a lot of this with the DEIA work as well. Um, for me, what it, what it really comes down to is two elements of emotional intelligence, um, which are self-awareness and empathy. And just to the minute, Dan, Dan Goldman, Daniel Goldman wrote emotional intelligence. He like popularized the whole field and he kind of says that there are these orientations or components of, of emotional intelligence, which is self-awareness, self-regulation or self-management. Um, and then I think he talks about motivation, uh, empathy, uh, and then mm. sort of, okay. So the ones that I think are crucial here in this context of what, of what you asked, I think are self-awareness and empathy if leaders. Really? Um, in these organizations 
can learn how to become aware of their thoughts, their emotions, their intuition, their impulses, um, then they are able to better understand other people in the organization. Um, yeah. Their thoughts and impulses and intuitions and motivations, they're able to really put themselves in their shoes at times and really try to maybe not even understand because sometimes we don't really get the experience of another fully. We haven't really, we're not in their shoes, so we can't really understand. And right. Just, oh, we can't really understand what uh, this person is going through in itself is kind of an act of empathy and compassion. And look, I don't get it, but I'm here, you know? Yeah. And, um, and I get that you're going through something which is tough and I'm glad that you told me and you know, that kind of, kind of language creates that, that safe space. And so you're, you're absolutely right. Leaders have to model it, but they need a certain amount of self-awareness to be able to have the empathy to then model uh, and create a conducive environment, as you called it, for psychological safety. And by psychological safety here, I think we mean people feeling safe to show up and to speak openly and to be vulnerable without fear of being ridiculed or reprimanded or judged um, yeah. by members of their team. Yeah, yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And um, two, two things here. First of all, I think there is that misconception with empathy. I, I did an episode of on empathy earlier this season as well, but um, the main thing is I think people often get misconstrued when they hear empathy. It doesn't mean to your point that you necessarily have to fully feel the emotion or, or experience what the other person is going through. No, I think you, just by having a un, an understanding that whatever the person is going through might be tough because of what they're experiencing is enough to your point. I don't think the expectation when it comes to empathy is feeling it. It's just recognizing that someone is going through something difficult potentially right and 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 voicing that the other piece I, I i do struggle with the whole notion of psychologically safe like what does that even mean i think as long as we can create safety that's the biggest piece i think when you put psychological in front of it it can have certain connotations for people or interpretations um it's just adding a word that probably doesn't need to belong there as long as there's safety, but that's just my thought. I think it, I, I think it's a good point. And I think maybe to be totally inclusive, it's, it's, I think a lot of people in some contexts see safety as physical safety, right? They're like, am I yeah. physically safe, say on the factory floor, I used to run a factory. So is this physically safe workspace uh, or workplace? Um, you know, so occupational health and safety is kind of, yeah, been clumped. Yes. The word psychological comes in to just say, well, is this, is this safe? Is it safe to show up fully as me here with everything? Yeah. Who I am. Um, and maybe there's a better term for it or a better way of explaining that, but look, you're safe to show up in your totality. Are really fully possible in any environment? Maybe not, but you know we can strive for that. Um, that yeah, you're, you're welcome here, um, and you're welcome to show up um, fully here. Uh, and your views and opinions are welcome here. 
Um, yeah. You know, as long as, you know, you are being respectful and understanding of other people's, <laughs> you know, other people and their space and what they're bringing as well. So, uh, of course. Yeah. 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 No, no. Thank you for building on that. Um, I just wanted to shift gears a little bit, but I wanted to understand just personally and maybe for the listeners too, what initiated your whole mindfulness journey? Like, um, cause I know for me, it was kind of like not ever being given the space to be myself or, or not feeling like I could be myself at times. Um, mindfulness has really helped me with that journey, but there were certain things that triggered that for me and, and wanting to really look inward to be able to make improvements in my life. What facilitated that for you? Like, why is mindfulness something, it sounds like it's something you prioritize. Has it always been like that? Or is that something that you, uh, embarked on, you know, in the recent few years or. Yeah. I mean, you really, you really bring up a, a, a great point that, that I just want to highlight, which is often, um, this kind of journey towards mindfulness or being more present comes from some sort of it's facilitated by something to use your words. And what facilitated that for you is the question you asked me. And often it is kind of hardships, grief, loss, something, some difficult emotion, actually, or emotional experience uh, that, that, that is a doorway to that. And for me, it was actually a physical health condition. So when I was about 19 years old, I, um, I had this rare motility disorder of the esophagus to be very specific. And basically Man. I swallow my food properly and I was having a lot of discomfort and I ended up having a few operations to try to resolve that and it was frustrating and uncomfortable. And I felt very victimized. Why me? Why can't I be? drinking and partying with my friends, you know, at that age, parties. Yeah. Um, and, oh, I, you know, I think it kind of forced me to look within a little bit. Um, and also I, I was exposed to different systems of medicine because at that point, Western or allopathic medicine had its limits. There came a point where after a few operations and several, you know, types of medication and, and little relief, doctors were like, this is all we can do. And mm -hmm. then kind of started exploring uh, alternative medicine, things like acupuncture and kinesiology and chiropractic and osteopathy and, and stuff which I previously may have viewed as or unscientific. Or, and I started to open yeah. my to these things and they actually really helped me. And then I had to look at, okay, how did acupuncture, which is some sort of energy medicine, help me? And what is this energy that they talk about in India? They call it prana. In, in Japan, they call it ki. In China, they call it chi. What, what is this life force yeah. energy that everyone's talking about? And then that led me to, to the source of, you know, what's, what is the source of this life force energy that flows through our meridians? And that's, that's where I kind of came across uh, the work of Eckhart Tolle, who I mentioned earlier. Yeah. Out. So that was in 2000. So yeah, I was about 19. Uh, I was about, so, out, yeah, yeah, about 19, 
18, 19 when I picked up that book. And, um, and it kind of changed my whole perspective on things. Um, I was just like, oh, there's a different way to look at this. I became very interested in the present moment. And then I looked at different spiritual traditions, whether it was Sufism or Hinduism or Buddhism. And I realized that there's a common denominator. My different rites and rituals and um, ways of doing things and ways of worshiping, ways of praying. Yeah. Ultimately, they're all saying that the secret to happiness, well-being um, is living in the present moment. So then I kind of became obsessed with this whole living in the present moment things. But it was very separate. It was weird because I would have a little meditation. I'd sit and meditate and I'd try to be present. And then I'd go to work and run my business without really thinking about how does the rubber hit the road. It was kind of, I think a lot of people do this actually. The thing is, <laughs> yeah. This, spiritual esoteric part about living in the present but and meditating and then you go to work and you just are like everything and you're like everyone else and you, you don't really give a second thought to it uh, it was later I, much much later in my life that i started to to realize that actually this is a living breathing practice like this is about showing up in every moment of every day yeah. in every conversation in every relationship Every interaction is an opportunity to be present, to be mindful. Yeah, and that kind of changes the game for me. Yeah, well, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, and it's you're so right that we, you know, despite building these practices in our personal life, we we seldom translate that into you know you kind of again put on a mask once you get into work or in the office, and and then it's hard. You, you forget about how valuable staying in the present moment, like you mentioned, is, especially in the workplace. So, so I think being able to bridge that gap is important for most people and, and, uh, maintaining that even in the workplace, I think is, is very beneficial and, and helpful. Um, I guess as we come to an end here for us, uh, I just want to understand, so as whether it's organizations or members of an organization. We've kind of touched on it in, in various ways, but I just want to tie it all together. What can people do to be more present? And we've touched on mindfulness, but even being able to feel comfortable and speaking their truth in, in the workplace, um, whether you're the employer or employee, like what are some things people can do to, to improve that situation or all the things we've talked about so far? Yeah, no, great, great question. Um, so actually the course I teach is called Search Inside Yourself. It was developed in Google. Um, and it's really about these practical tools. I like that you're getting to the practicality of things. Um, you know, one of the things we, we kind of advocate for is just taking three breaths. Um, yeah. And we can do that here right now, actually. Um, so on the first breath, I'll explain it and then we can do it together. On the sure. first breath, um, we can just notice the inhalation and the exhalation. Notice the, the, fun the function of breathing. And then on the second breath, um, we can actually just relax our bodies. 
just notice if there's any tension and perhaps invite it to release. And then on the third breath, we can actually ask ourselves what's important now. So let's do that together for a few. Sure. Yeah. So first. Noticing, breathing. Second breath. Just relaxing the body, releasing any tension. Third breath. Asking ourselves what's important now. So how was that experience for you, Furkan? Um, I mean, I like to think I'm pretty present and, and aware, but for me, it was, uh, it was so important to just slow things down. So like, you know, just being aware of just this present moment and experiencing this conversation. And even though I'm here present, it, it was so important to slow it down and, and bring my I guess myself, the seed itself to the present. Yeah, I, th I think it's like a reset for me. I, I love the way you just it, like just coming back to the present. Yeah. And, um, and I think it's like a little bit of a reset. Sometimes we're so lost in all our emails and that little confrontation we had with a colleague or something that's going on at home or something's going on with our parents or our kids that we we're just not, we, don't have the, we feel we don't have the capacity to be present. We're like, oh, I don't funny meditate. Are you crazy? You know, who has time for that? Um, but yeah. when you do that in just three breaths, before walking into a meeting, before starting a new task, before giving a presentation, if we can just practice that, I, you know, and I invite you, the listeners, to try this out. It sounds so simple, almost too simple. To try out this three breath practice, micro practice even. Um, and see what happens to your state of mind and then other people in, in the room. Another example of what you can do is if you get two people on board is maybe as you're about to start a meeting, everybody's coming in with all their baggage, with all their emotional baggage and, you know, all, all scattered maybe after lunch or something. And just like inviting everyone, shall we take a moment to arrive? Mm. You know? And could just be grounding, sitting, feeling our feet on the ground in this moment, taking a few breaths in and out. Uh, it could be inviting everyone to just take a moment and think of, of what they're grateful for. Um, and, and I know that, you know, your work environment may or may not, depending on your position as well, be conducive or open to that. But I think it's really up to you to, to, to kind of discover what are the things that I can see here that I can wield a little bit of influence or just do it yourself. Just doing it yourself will impact the experience of everybody that you interact with. And that can be contagious in itself. Um, mm -hmm. You get a group or your team, let's say you're, you're in charge of a team and not kind of imposing anything on anyone. We're not to preach or, or push anything down, down people's throats. It's like, what would make this a more pleasant experience for you? How could this meeting work better for you. you know, how, how's everyone arriving? I know that during COVID uh, with Zoom meetings, I mean, that was kind of an important part of it. Just have that check-in. Um, mm -hmm. 
writing a meeting. It makes such a difference because to your earlier point, Furkan, we need to humanize the workplace again. It's like too many workplaces have become very um, machine-like. Just yeah. you know, outputs, results, um, bottom line, etc., and targets. How far are we from our target? As opposed to, there's a human, there's five human beings, let's say, in this meeting. How is everyone today? How are you arriving? You know, what's going on for you? And then, yes, let's jump into where is everyone at with their target. But uh, let's honor yeah. being first. Yeah, yeah, and and thank you for walking uh, us and me through the exercise. Appreciate that, and and it's so important, right? I think if we can build and foster that environment, then you're actually looking out for each other in in the real sense, rather than focusing on numbers and results. Uh, which I mean, I they are important, but I think your people delivering those are more important. And when you can kind of foster that environment and look out for each other, it does create a, uh, you know, a, a, a great workplace. It, it's like any community I'm a part of where we're just coming, showing up for each other with no other intention, but then just showing up for each other. And it's so valuable when people feel that human connection, um, they, they actually want to be there with you. Right. And, and that's, that's also very important when you, when you consider a workplace. That's yeah, that's beautiful. Showing up for each other and showing up for ourselves. Mm -hmm. In this moment, am I showing up for myself? Am I honoring yeah. my need? Am I, you know, am I fully embodied? Am I taking the time to center and ground it and be fully here? And then can I show up for others? Right. Cause you can't give from an empty cup. Uh, yeah. So can I show up for myself, for myself? Can I show up for others uh, and, and really be present towards some point? Yep. Yep. No, thank you. Then that, that, yeah, you're right. Show up for yourself first. And that's the most important thing. So, so thank you for that for us. And yeah, as, as we come to an end here, um, I, I just, again, want to thank you for your time. I appreciate this conversation. I, I gained so much out of it. But for listeners that would like to learn more about you or even get a hold of you, are there ways that people can find you online or, or social media, uh, whatever platforms you use? Yeah, I'm online. I'm on LinkedIn as Faraz, F-A-R-A-Z, uh, Ramji, R-A-M-J-I. Um, I think that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. Uh, and I'd love to hear from you. So please, uh, please reach out. Well, thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. It's, it's my passion and I just believe that everybody should have access to this knowledge, these tools. And if there's any sharing that I can do that can further that, um, it's just a delight. Thank you. Thank you for checking this episode out with Faraz. Please subscribe to this podcast if you already haven't done so. It's one of the best ways to support this podcast. And Leave a comment in the comment section. I always love hearing from you. Until next week.